Welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, shining the light on the positive works of our members and supporters. I'm your host, Bob Norm. Few people embody the roles of innovator, disruptor, and inspirational role model quite like Francis Arnold. Now, Dr. Arnold has expanded the expectations of what chemical engineering can achieve, taking her engineering expertise in systems and processes and applying it directly to the world of biochemistry. Now, this has resulted in her groundbreaking work into directed evolution, which promises to use biological systems to create more effective and environmentally responsible products for everyday use. Now, our credits and honors are far too lengthy to list here, but I will say that Dr. Arnold is a distinguished member of the faculty at the California Institute of Technology, where she continues her research as well as continues to inspire the next generation of chemical engineering students. Dr. Arnold, welcome. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Now, I am always fascinated by a person's personal journey toward who they will ultimately become. And certainly your father's background as a nuclear physicist probably predisposed you to the sciences. But in researching for this interview, I also found out that as a high schooler, you hitchhiked to a protest in Washington, D.C., and then you lived on your own working as a cocktail waitress and a cab driver. Now, all of that seems so different from where you ended up in your, your career. So how did these early experiences shape your life and the choices you would later make? Uh, well, it's not so different. I mean, if you think about it, driving a big, fat, yellow cab through the narrow, hilly, haphazard streets of Pittsburgh is not unlike science. And remember, there's no GPS in those days. So you're heading out on your own. And frankly, after you do that, everything else seems easy. And I can see how that would shape your shape you directionally when it came to the sciences, because you worked without a roadmap. You kind of went and explored the world and discovered that the way we were doing things wasn't exactly the best way to do it. In fact, and if you maybe I don't know how old you are, but back then we had the Vietnam War. There was a lot of protests going on and we didn't trust the older generation. So we had to make our own way. Now, you started off pursuing mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton. That's where you first started getting back into the, the scientific community. But by the time you moved on to your doctoral work at Berkeley, your focus changed to chemical engineering. Why the shift? Why did you make that move from the mechanical area of engineering into the chemical engineering area of engineering? Well, after Princeton... I was working at the brand new national laboratory, the Solar Energy Research Institute, where we were trying to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. Back then, we had a national goal of 20% renewable energy by the year 2000. What a great goal. But when Reagan was elected, I thought it might be a good time to move on. And I found myself in chemical engineering at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, right at the beginning of the DNA revolution. I hadn't planned it, it just happened, and here was a whole new industry that was emerging, the biotech industry. That sounds fascinating. I mean, you know, to be right at the start of the entire industry, to be at the start of this whole research phenomenon. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. What was it like? What was it like to work with so many great minds in one place? 
well, of course, it was infinitely fascinating. There wasn't a boring day. And everything at the beginning, everything is possible. I became interested in biotechnology and biochemistry, and I took courses from the most famous of the biochemists. So you were taking courses, coursework on a regular basis with some of the top thinkers in the space. I imagine you were also working side by side with a, the, the, the next generation of future thinkers who are, you know, working right with you and developing some new thinking uh, in, the, in the chemical engineering space. It really was because it was the beginning of a whole new industry. We had to define what chemical engineering would be in the future. There was no chemical engineering for recombinant DNA. We had to make it up. We had to anticipate what industry would need and bring that technology to bear to make sure that these processes could scale up and really provide products to people. Now, this fascination with chemical processes, it's led you to many unusual places in your career. Tell me a little bit more about how your background in engineering led you to work into, led you to work in biochemistry specifically, because that doesn't seem like necessarily an, a natural evolution for a lot of people in the chemical engineering space. I went into engineering thinking I would be working on the most marvelous uh, devices that humans had made, aerospace and spaceships. But then I discovered biology. Biological systems are the most marvelous feats of engineering doing what human engineers would love to be able to do. When you think about it, biology takes materials and energy from the environment and converts them into other things like organisms. But they do it with renewable resources and under mild conditions. So I looked at biology as solving problems in such an elegant way, and I decided that's what I wanted to do in my career, use biology to do engineering. I was actually going to do better than biology and engineer the proteins, the workhorses of life. That is, that's what fascinates me most, most about your story, is the fact that you took um, a different worldview of how chemical processes worked. You, you applied the engineering perspective to it, and it became this, um, this series of functions that could be manipulated to produce chemical engineering-type results only using the biochemistry itself. Um, that, that's, what, that's just totally fascinating, and it probably was revolutionary um, to all the people working around you. I mean, nobody else was thinking about biochemistry quite like that, were they? Well, that's not entirely fair. Um, people had been using biology to do engineering and make chemicals probably for the last 10,000 years, right? We, we've been using biological systems to make beer and wine and cheese and food. But here we were beginning to learn how to recode them and, and manipulate the code of life to engineer them at the molecular level. And this was what was so fascinating. Our tools were just emerging to do this. Now, what led you to your work in directed evolution specifically? What were the, was there a singular insight that said directed evolution is where I'm going to spend the next few decades of my life working? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll tell you what that insight was. I wanted to engineer proteins, but I had no clue how hard it would be. 
even today, you think about it, we still have very little understanding of how a sequence, the DNA, encodes a biological function. And that's especially true for catalysis, for the enzymes that I work with. So here I wanted to make something that was better than what nature provided, at least you know for the new applications that we envisioned. But I realized I could not compose a new enzyme sequence that was truly useful. So what did I do? I turned to the process by which all of these things have been made for the last three plus billion years, evolution. I figured out how to evolve new enzymes in the laboratory using random mutation, recombination, and artificial selection. Breeding molecules like humans have been breeding corn, cats, carrier pigeons, you name it, for thousands of years. Now that's, that's... And it turned out it worked really, really well. And, and that's... It provided things no human could design. That's so fascinating. I mean, the, uh, I'm just you know, floored by that insight and the way that you kind of just throw it off nonchalantly. But it's it's pretty dramatic to think about biochemistry as being something that could be manipulated just like an engineering process. Um, was there a big breakthrough or a big moment of uh, like, I've got it, I've made it work? Can you talk me through a little bit about that experience? It was a series of breakthroughs. What we understood, well, we first understood is that we knew nothing. Nobody knew how to make a better protein. And it was the desire to make something and to the willingness to let loose the control at the molecular level. And let me explain briefly. In before directed evolution, the paradigm was you get the crystal structure, you go in and use your big brain to identify what changes need to be made, and then you make those specific changes. Evolution is completely different. It says, I don't understand how this really works. So we'll try thousands of mutations and see which ones work. Then we iterate on that and accumulate beneficial mutations in really a molecular optimization process until you obtain what you want. We didn't know if that could be done either, because you think evolution takes thousands, millions of years. Would it be reasonable to do it on the time scale of a PhD thesis? And <laughs> the breakthrough so great. was discovering that, yes, it is feasible, and in fact works really well. Now, how do you envision directed evolution transforming the products that we use every day? And how does this impact the way we create and deliver these products through our current infrastructure? Does it require um, modifications of the existing systems in order to manufacture going forward? Or do the existing systems even function under these paradigms? And do we need to rethink the entire process? Well, we can always improve what's already there. That was the first wave of directed evolution. But now we can consider going out in entirely new directions. I mean, when you think about it, almost all enzymes used in products today, from laundry detergents to those used to make pharmaceuticals, they've all been optimized using some form of directed evolution. This has been around for 20 years. And so industry is making more of the products we use in our daily lives through biological roots, which is great. 
because we are replacing unsustainable processes that generate toxic waste with these clean, efficient enzymes. But what's so exciting is that now we can, we're so good at this that we can consider making enzymes that do chemistry that nature's never even explored, that only humans have conceived of. And we can now consider using biology to make a whole spectrum of things that that only became possible in the last few years. Are, are there any specific products or any specific um, opportunities that are uh, in action today that are starting to use these processes in order to achieve better results? There's lots of good examples. One of my favorite is Merck's Genuvia drug for type 1 diabetes. That is now... It used to be made using a, a precious metal catalyst and generating a lot of toxic waste, organic solvents. Now it's made using an enzyme that was created in the laboratory through directed evolution. Well, and, you know, I, I can see unlimited possibilities for that. And, and the impact on the environment is the, probably the most important thing. It's not just that it, it's probably cheaper to do, but it's also more efficient and uh, as well as safer for the for the the population at large. Well, that's what really drives me, Bob. I want to see us move to a much more sustainable chemicals industry, and biology has been doing that for billions of years, using renewable resources, plant sugars, carbon dioxide, even garbage. We should be able to do that as well. Now, where is your research leading you today? Any hints you want to give us about your next big revelation or any area of study that you want to talk about? Well, I hinted on it uh, just a few minutes ago, going out where nature has never explored, making enzymes that catalyze reactions not known in nature and sometimes not even known to humans. I mean, human chemists are pretty clever. But when you combine human chemistry with the specificity and elegance of biological systems, we can now do chemistry, make molecules and materials that it was almost impossible to conceive of in the past. One of the fun examples that we published last year was the first enzyme to forge carbon-silicon bonds, bringing silicon into life for the first time. And, and that's, that's no small feat because that's like, uh, the, uh, in a lot of ways, a holy grail moment where you're combining the synthetic with the organic in a, in a truly meaningful way. Um, what, what's, been the res, what's been the result of that? What, what kind of opportunities are being presented as a, as a result of this study? Well, first, it, it touches people's imaginations. And that's really the most important thing, because what we can do as a single group is small. But if we open up the possibilities where people can now use their creativity and say, well, what if I made this? Could I create this new set of products in a sustainable fashion? It will diffuse out and lots of people will make them. Specifically, in my case, of course, doing carbon-silicon bond chemistry for the first time I got a number of phone calls from industry saying, wow, can you do this? Can you do that? It would be so exciting to replace the precious metal catalyst that we use today. So we'll see where that goes. 
Now, I want to shift gears here because a big part of your life is not just research, but also education. What is your biggest concern when it comes toward inspiring the next generation of engineers going forward? Are they getting the right education? Are they um, exploring the right sources of opportunity like you would have them do? I mean, what, what's your thoughts on, educa- on the education process for engineers right now? Well, I love the education. I, I have the lucky position of being at the California Institute of Technology, where we get the brightest young people in the world. My only concern is that we give them the chance to take risks and make mistakes, because learning and, and certainly going out on the frontiers of science and engineering means that you have to take risks and be willing to do that. Of course, you don't want to take risks when you're building a chemical plant, but by far the best way to discover new knowledge is to head out where no one else has gone. Yeah, I guess there were there are some risks you don't want to take when it comes to chemical engineering, yes. <laughs> considering the the impetus in, on in learning. Yeah. Learning and discovery is so important. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be risk built into the process because you got to be willing to if I don't know if I should use this word, but blow up the old system and think about new systems that are even more efficient, which has been the watchword of your entire career going forward. That's right. Now, many of our guests have expressed a need for greater diversity within the ranks of the engineering community. Are you encouraged by the progress um, being so close to the, the forefront of education and being directly interacting with students. Are you encouraged by the progress of diversity, uh, people of different colors and different ethnicities and different genders being admitted into the program? And what more needs to be done? Well, as a student of evolution and how the biological world innovates, I know that success rests squarely on the back of genetic diversity. And the reason is solutions to any given problem can arise from the most unexpected places. We also know lack of diversity leads straight to extinction. So I feel the same is true in engineering because if we don't have a diversity of backgrounds and experiences, we all head down the same path. And that solution may not be on that path. So I think that encouraging as many people from different backgrounds, colors, you name it, uh, to go into engineering is is critical. Whether we're making enough progress, well, there's never enough, but the encouragement is certainly there. Well, that's that's good to hear. Um, And how can, I always ask this last question, I always um, bring this to the forefront because we are doing this podcast on behalf of Doing a World of Good, a program of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. And Knowing that that is a a big reason that we're talking to you today, what is the best way that a program like this can serve you and your students' needs over the next decade? Well, you can do it by encouraging young people to try things they've never done before. It's how one adapts to a rapidly changing and highly competitive world. And that, that sounds like a fair answer to a, 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 an important part of us going forward with this program. So thank you very much. And thank you for spending time with us today, Dr. Arnold. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, our guest today has been Dr. Frances Arnold. To find out more about her work, Google the Frances Arnold Research Group. It'll take you right there. 
And for more details about the Doing a World of Good program, visit AICHE.org giving. Well, that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit AICHE.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening.